Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. Welcome back to another week of scandalous splits. Uh, my name is Stacy. I'm Alicia. And thanks for joining us today. We are going beyond the sea. It's a we are. international cruise of trash candy this yes. week, sort of. Yes. Stacy, you are checking in from Ports Madrid, Australia. Perth. Perth. All Perth. the Perth. I, I have one of the most fascinating Australians that I'd never heard of, Rose Porteous. This was recommended by a listener in our Facebook group, and I cannot thank you enough. It's a great story. Who do you have? You have like a screen legend. Uh, screen legend. I've got a double bonus episode. So for y'all who pulled us up like an hour and a half long episode, it's me, guilty. For those of you who like my deep dive old Hollywood stories, this one is for you. We have a few things, Stacy and I do, cooking over here at Hemlock Creatives that we're going to be telling you about in a few weeks. But with the holidays upon us, what better time for a real family togetherness arc of a story? So your double episode today was originally released on Patreon, edited a little bit for continuity of the lovely, twice married, twice divorced, badass goddess that she was, Olivia de Havilland. Next week, we're going to follow with the additional story about her wannabe murderess sister, Joan Fontaine. There's a lot of trash candy and two sisters with a lifelong feud. We're taking a little departure this week, but we are a good podcast about bad relationships. And right, and Olivia... All of it qualifies. Olivia de Havilland fits into the Beyond the Sea theme because she grew up in Tokyo, at least part of the time. And lived the remainder of her adult life in France. There you go. We're beyond the sea everywhere hey, this let's, week. Let's go to our magic mirror. Thank you. New patrons who have joined us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces, getting ad free and early episodes, bonus episodes three or four times a week. Stacy, kick us off. Sure. Thank you so much to Petranet L, Ashley A, Kelly J, Barbara L, Emily T. Got a few more people I see in the magic mirror. A few more shout outs. Don A, thanks for upgrading your annual support. And Amanda K and Whitney. Two new super supporters. We can't wait to see you at our Sunday salon happening today. Big thanks to all of our Patreon folks. Big mm -hmm. thanks to our Sunday and Wednesday listeners. Yep. All right, Alicia, if we're going to get beyond the sea, what do we need to do now? My lover stands waiting for me. We got to go, go, go. So, Stacy, you had a last-minute burst of inspiration from the land down under. Yes, I did. I did. Um, sometimes a love gone wrong story is so over-the-top trashy that we don't even care if it's not technically a divorce. And Australia, as always, you have delivered us a banger this week. Our podcast is a good podcast about bad relationships. Does it's it have a bad relationship? Many. Is it trash candy? So many. Do it. 
So I want to say thanks to listener Jay in Brisbane. Thanks, Jay. Who introduced me to the story of Rose Porteous, a Philippine national who ended up marrying one of Australia's richest men, the iron magnate Lang Hancock, which sparked an epic and extremely ugly legal battle with Lang's daughter, Gina Reinhardt, that spanned decades of headlines and news show airtime. This stretched, it was basically a 20-year war between these two women. My guess is that most of our American listeners will not have heard of this, and just let me tell you, you are in for a treat. I have no idea what's coming, and I am on the edge of my seat. I mean, yeah. Okay, we're going to start with Lang, who was a mere 40-ish years older than his blushing third bride when they married in 1985. Oh, wow. Langley Frederick George Hancock was born June 10th, 1909 in Perth, which is in Western Australia, and a little context for our non-Aussie listeners— The state of Western Australia occupies about a third of the landmass of that continent and on the Western side, if you're wondering. But today it's home to like 10% of the population of the nation. Oh, wow. I think the ratio may have been even lower back when Lang was a boy. But let's just say that Western Australia is pretty rugged, pretty rural. Perth is a city of like two or three million today. It's on the coast. It's anyway, big stretch of land. There's a lot lot of outback. A lot of outback, outback. Okay. Mm Lang's parents, like many, were ranchers, so much of his and his three siblings' early life was spent on the family's sheep and cattle stations out in the bush in Western Australia, and his explorations of the ancient terrain led to an interest in prospecting, mining, that kind of thing. He discovered an asbestos deposit at the age of 10, and he would, as an adult, stake a claim on it and enter into a partnership to mine the stuff, bailing on the investment before it became widely known that asbestos is, you know... A deadly Poison. carcinogen. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Documents <laughs> documents unearthed decades later show that he did know this even when he was mining it, but he spent the rest of his life denying that he had any responsibility for the workers who were sickened mining the fibers. Yikes. Yeah. Cool guy. Uh, he married for the first time in 1935, but after a few years at his family's Mulga Downs station, that is station and ranch are interchangeable. Young Suzette realized that she was a city girl at heart. (laughs) Oh, the outback is not the back I want. Yeah, and uh, beat a quick path back to Perth. So they were divorced by 44. He married again in 1947 to Hope Margaret Nicholas. This one would not only last until her death in 1983, but also produce what Wikipedia describes as his, quote, only acknowledged child. Oh, wow. Only acknowledged? That's new. (laughs) Yes, this is the aforementioned Gina Reinhardt. Apparently, there is at least one other who claims (laughs) descent. In the early 50s, Lang discovered a truly massive deposit of iron ore, perhaps the largest deposit in the world, in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Interestingly, at the time, the official position of the government of Australia was that the nation was sort of mineral scarce. So it it was illegal to export iron ore. And in Western Australia, you couldn't even state claims to prospect for it. Like they were just like, well, we don't have any. And if we find any, we need to have it for our domestic industries. So over the next decade, however, additional deposits were identified around the country. Laws were changed. And suddenly Lang Hancock and his business partner were ridiculously wealthy men. Oh, this was like early 60s. So you will be surprised to learn that, among other things, 
Lang Hancock was something of a right-wing crank who would occasionally fantasize to reporters about sterilizing Australia's aboriginal population. Oh my god. He attempted to start some newspapers to push his kooky far-right views. Those failed. He founded a secession movement for Western Australia. Oh, geez. He wanted to drill deep holes in the earth and then detonate nuclear bombs in, in uh, them. Uh, what? To make mining easier. What? Uh, he tried to have the government censor the works of Ralph Nader, the economist John Kenneth Galbraith, and the group Friends of the Earth. He, oh. He just, wow. We don't need you eco-loonies. Does he have a cult still operating in the outback? Like, I, I think his secessionist... Does he have some followers? I, th- I think his daughter continues to fund the secessionist movement. I'm, oh not, sure, I'm not sure about that. Anyway, daughter Gina, meanwhile, was born February 9th, 1954, and she was being raised like a baby executive, insofar as their business was out mining, right? Like, they, these were not office people. These are not city people. This legit sounds like a Pixar or Disney cartoon, and it's called Baby Executive. I mean... And she's got a lunatic father. Baby mining executive, yeah. Yeah, baby mining executive. And I can just see her a little at the control board with the yeah. TM. It's, it's kind of like baby that. Baby mining executive. Somebody needs to write the screenplay. Yeah, by the time she was 12, she was taking meetings beside her dad. She was not just the heir apparent. I mean, she was Lang's only heir, but of course she was a daughter. So he referred to her as young fella and my right-hand man. Oh God, it's like Robin Sparkles on How I Met Your Mother. Yeah. So after she finished high school in Perth and she spent her high school years traveling the world with her father to have meetings with, you know, like business executives in Japan and Arab sheikhs and like, they just- Good job, son. Exactly. Thanks, Dad. Here's a cigar. Oh, um, God. So she graduates high school. She attends the University of Sydney for a year. But there was this lefty pinko economics professor who had opinions about things, and she had no need for that. She's baby mining executive. So Come she, on. She headed back to Perth to what she referred to as the House of Hancock because she had no pretensions. Oh, Jesus. But what happens when daddy's little fella girl (laughs) finds herself a man? Oh, no. Well, some conflict. Uh Uh-oh. She was married for a few years in the 70s to a Hancock employee. They would have two kids. And weirdly, Lang made the guy change his last name so no one would figure out that she had married, that his daughter had married a commoner. Man of the people. I'm not. I'm not. So this relationship was not, however, the real source of trouble. After she divorced hubby number one, she met Frank Reinhardt, an American lawyer, 37 years her senior, who, among other things, had been disbarred for tax fraud. Oh, no. Gina was in love. Oh, tax Gina. Fraud. Baby mining executive. Lang, meanwhile, was deeply unsettled and suspicious of this guy. Yeah, you think? So they married in 1983, the same year that Gina's mother, Hope, died. When Gina decided to contest her mother's will, Lang was convinced that it was new disgraced lawyer Hubby who was trying to make a grab for the company. But family is family. And Gina knew that her newly widowed father needed more looking after than she could provide him. Although I think she and her family were living like on the same property, like in a house behind the house where the mansion where dad lived. Anyway, she hired a maid to work in his home, a Filipino woman named Rose Laxon, who was in the country on a three-month visa. What happened next would push the family to the breaking point. Dun-dun. Dun-dun. Okay. Rose Laxon was born October 26th, 1948. 
into the not-well-off branch of a well-off family. Her grandfather had been a military bigwig during the Philippine Revolution and then a sugar baron. And her uncle was Manila's first mayor, but her father, I think there had been 18 kids and there was like the lawful descendants and then the mistress descendants. The acknowledged children? I think dad was on the mistress descendant side. Anyway, he didn't inherit much. 18 kids. Whoa. I mean, he he was a sugar baron. <laughs> Clearly. Just one step above a sugar daddy. He made it into the barony. Anyway. So her father had not inherited much, but it does seem like by the, I mean, this is Philippines in the 40s and 50s and 60s, like by the standards of the day and place, it seems like she had a relatively comfortable upbringing, at least maybe more than many other Filipinos. Okay. Bad first marriage in 1971, which, if you believe Rose, may have begun with her being kidnapped at gunpoint and being held hostage for weeks until she agreed to begin a relationship with her kidnapper, Julian J. Teodoro. That's probably criminal. Not, that's probably not true. That's actually her grandmother's story of how she became the mistress of her grandfather. There are some questions about the veracity of tales Rose tells. Would she be an unreliable narrator? Yes. Okay. Is the yes. gun on the stage? I mean, according to her, the gun was in the vehicle pointed at her back. So, wow. Who can say? <laughs> anyway, Jay came from money and was the... I guess the near-to-well son of a local tennis shoe factory owner. Okay. I mean, whatever. Jay himself dabbled in both politics and organized crime, and it really appears those were more or less the same thing in Manila in this period. The Ferdinand Marcos regime had started in 65. It was a military dictatorship. It was a lot of corruption. This is really an international tale of trash. There's just, there's a lot here. So problematically, Jay was already married. And the story goes, he had Rose go through what turned out to be a sham wedding ceremony as a result. Wait a minute. He's married, Mm -hmm. but he's able to kidnap her, hold Mm -hmm. her for months. Mm -hmm. Weeks. Months. And then go through a sham marriage. Does Jay's wife have anything to... Oh. Oh, God. Okay. It gets so much worse. Oh, God. So Rose did not know it was a sham, of course. And you can already see that this relationship is off to a strong start. Oh, Lord. Then things get seriously darker because the dual marriage, fake marriage thing was resolved when Jay's real wife was murdered by her boyfriend when she tried to break things off. (gasps) So yeah, really a lot darker. Jay and Rose, who was by now pregnant, were lawfully wed about a month after the murder. Oh my God. Yeah. This is, I'm just trying to process all of that. Oh yeah. So while the relationship yielded a daughter, it was violent, it was unhappy, and it was brief. By 1973-74, Rose had left Jay, and Jay had left Manila to join a band of Muslim rebels on Mindanao Island who were waging an insurgency against the Ferdinand Marcos regime. This story has everything. It's terrible. Rose was pretty estranged from her family at this point and would spend some years hustling in the black market... There was a big uh, U.S. military base, so it's they were able to get some dollars in their pockets that were more valuable than Philippine pesos. Anyway, she would also wander the world a bit, where she would also hustle. She got herself to Madrid at one point and then on to Italy, where she ended up as a house model in a high-end boutique for a while. Oh, wow. Before she returned to Manila. Okay. 
There was another short marriage in 1980 to a guy named Patrick Kwan, and he seems like he might be the only sort of good person in this story, although he actually is one? did get popped for fraud, so I don't know. Oh, my. He was a normal guy with normal dreams who worked in an office for his family's business, building water treatment plants on government contracts in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. He met Rose one night at a bar while she was traveling to visit a different lover in 1979 and was quickly hooked. You may be surprised to learn that a normal life lost its appeal to Rose in fairly short order, but her daughter, who is now, I don't know, seven, would recall this period living in a pleasant middle-class home, attending school, having a routine, and a stable stepfather for once as the happiest period of her life. I can imagine it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it probably is. Yeah, her daughter really spent the rest of her childhood alternately being stashed with some family member of Rose's while Rose flitted around the globe, or it seems being completely ignored by her mother, who loved the nightlife and seems to have generally relied on the attentions of wealthy men to pay her bills. Likes to boogie. After Rose's father in Manila passed away a year or so into the marriage, the couple relocated back to the Philippines. Patrick, thrown into Rose's messy milieu, wilted and eventually got caught up in a credit card fraud scheme that got him deported back to Malaysia, sans passports. Oh, God. Also sans Rose, who he would not see again until she showed up asking for a divorce in 1985. Okay. Yeah. He called. He wrote. He tried. But yeah. Instead, Rose followed a friend to Perth, Australia, where the friend had accepted a marriage proposal from an older Australian army guy. And it was through them that Rose learned that one of the richest men in Western Australia, recently widowed, was looking for a housekeeper. The job paid $180 a week, plus room and board. And Gina Reinhardt herself flew home from a trip to Sydney to personally get Lang's new housekeeper up to speed. Oh. Her dad, her dad was completely useless when it came to cooking and cleaning, although as time passed, it became clear that Rose was as well. Oh, no. No matter, though, Rose was a gorgeous 35-ish-year-old woman who knew the power of her feminine charms, and Lang, who had nursed his wife through a long and devastating battle with cancer, was only too happy to be charmed. Again, 1983 was a very big year for the Hancock clan. The year kicked off with Gina's marriage to the disgraced American lawyer. A a union Lang was so angry about that he did not attend the wedding. Mm, That is angry. There was her mother's death on the 2nd of April, which required the addition of a live-in housekeeper who started work on the 20th of April. And within weeks, the relationship between employee and employer had become romantic. Weeks? Yeah. Wow. Well, okay. No, that's... She's on a three-month visa. (laughs) You gotta work fast. Gina was obviously incensed and went so far as to hire private investigators to try to dig up dirt to convince her father to come to his senses, but her father was quite happily not going to do so. I don't need any sense. Rose, of course, had this little visa issue. The three-month one that she was in Australia on did not technically allow her to work so she couldn't use her employment as a reason for an extension. Oh. She and Lang began gaming the immigration department first. Uh-huh. Hey, he's a rich guy. What? Deport my girlfriend? All right. So first they proposed a, a business venture where Rose would run a company exporting Western Australian wines to Southeast Asia. 
This was denied when the department could not find evidence that Rose had any business experience. Okay, that's fair. Then they upped the ante with kind of a direct buy-in to this proposed business. So Lang dropped a quarter million dollars into Rose's bank account and poof, visa issues went away for a while. Like magic. Magic. Gina, the lifelong heir to the business empire her father had built from nothing, could not stand it. The revenge of baby mining executive. Baby mining executive. She decamped to America with her husband and children, and they would have two more kids for a total of four, exchanging angry letters with her father, who was furious that she was interfering with his quest to get Rose legal residency. She told her father flat out, your relationship with Rose is making you a laughingstock. He wrote back sarcastically, asking Gina to, quote, Allow me to remember you as the neat, trim, capable, and attractive young lady that she had been, rather than, quote, the slothful, vindictive, and devious baby elephant that you have become. (gasps) (laughs) Lang pulled every string he could think of, even lobbying Australia's ambassador to the Philippines in person in Manila to get Rosa Visa. This would turn into a nasty scandal in Australia, which would, of course, blow the lid on the budding romance between the 76-year-old zillionaire and his 35-year-old housekeeper, with phrases like mail-order bride being bandied about. Ooh. Yeah, kind of ugly. In September 1984, Rose gave her first interview to an Australian newspaper, the first of, whoa, many. Okay. There was a fairly significant snag in the couple's eventual plans to get married. The Philippines did not then and does not now allow divorce. Oh. Catholic country. Can't do it. It's one of two countries in the world, along with Vatican City, that has no mechanism for making a person single again to allow them to remarry. I had no, That is brand new information. I had trivia, no idea. There's a trivia answer. The Philippines and Vatican City cannot divorce. So do great at pub night, trash pandas. Yeah, right. That's amazing. So in 1985, Rose wasn't just still married to Patrick. She was also still married to Jay. Oh, my God. Yeah. The marriage to Patrick was probably never legal. Anyway, I think she resolved this by divorcing Jay in Australia. And I don't know, maybe the marriage to Patrick was annulled. Maybe she divorced him in Malaysia. I'm not sure. But anyway, jurisdictional issues. Any hoozle, when Lang and Rose married on July 6th, 1985, Gina was not in attendance. Early on, it sort of seemed like the marriage was good for Lang. In a 60 Minutes Australia piece on them, they called themselves Beauty and the Beast. Oh, no. And Lang talked about how Rose was able to open doors with her charm that his rough-and-tumble demeanor, plus his kind of kooky reputation, could not. Rose made it seem like she was on a mission to civilize some relic of Australia's frontier past while she showed off dress after fancy dress that Lang had paid for. People who'd known him forever saw a remarkable transformation. Gone were the plain safari suits and the I-rolled-out-of-bed-like-this-greasy-gray-hair. In were tailored suits, clean, dyed hair. He'd used a walking cane for years. That was put away. He lost 40 years. Overnight. Ladies go crazy about a sharp-dressed man or something. I don't know. There were houses and cars, trips abroad, and a delightfully fraudulent relationship with the press. I think it's pretty clear at this point that Rose is a bit of a fabulist, unreliable narrator, whatever. And I think Lang just enjoyed screwing with reporters. He would like lie about where they met and whatever. He just, I think he loathed reporters as a species and had a lot of fun just toying with them. 
Around 1990, they built a 16-block mansion overlooking the Swan River in Perth that was modeled after Tara from Gone with the Wind. Oh, my. This was called Pre de More, and the couple would throw lavish parties and dance late into the night as guests marveled at the 80-ish-year-old Lang's energy. But over time, there were also problems. Rose, it turns out, was a bit demanding, and if she didn't get what she wanted, which could be anything from a pricey dress to a $2 million farm, she would, in the paternalistic words of many, throw tantrums. That's got to be attractive. (laughs) She would refuse to eat, for instance, or maybe just start screaming at Lang to get what she wanted. This wore badly over time, as you'd expect, and of course her spending was never anything short of eye-popping. Lang had health problems, too, and by the start of 1992, he was 82 years old, had a heart condition, and was on dialysis for kidney disease. He was hospitalized for a bit, but insisted on going home. Because of the level of care he needed, his doctors set up a room equipped for him in the guest house at Pre de More, where he was attended to by nurses round the clock while his valet slept on the floor beside his bed. Lang died on March 27, 1992. Although somewhat ironically helpfully for Rose, he had taken out a restraining order against her the day before, prohibiting her from being at his deathbed. Helpful because... Oh, God. Keep listening. Uh, Okay. Police spent about a year and a half investigating his death to ensure that there were no signs of foul play, but whoever looked at it and from whatever angle, it always came back to the poor guy died of heart disease and failing kidneys and lungs. He was 82 and he'd been a miner and prospector. Like, good run, Did you hear about the asbestos mine? Yeah. Gina, however, was certain that Rose had murdered her father, a suspicion that only intensified when Rose married her fourth husband, real estate agent and friend of the couple, William Porteous, just a few months after Ling's death. Oh, you can't do that, Rose. Rosie. Oh, she did. Rosie. She sure did. So Gina inherited the business, which was not in excellent shape by that point, but she executed a solid reinvigoration of it. She is Australia's richest woman. She's one of the richest women in the world. And, you know, her net worth fluctuates with the price of whatever, but um, $30 is not out of the ballpark. That's a lot of billions. She never got over Rose getting about $30 in property, including Pre de More. There were a bunch of fancy homes in Sydney from her father's estate. So she spent the 1990s suing Rose and gathering evidence, real and imagined, until her lawyers finally convinced the Western Australia coroner to open an inquest in 1999, seven years after his death. What happened? Gina was effectively arguing that Rose had nagged her father to death, which I don't even know. <laughs> Is that a crime? A... How do you prosecute How do you that? check that on the box, on well, the form? Well, just to, they, the, a lot of things were thrown at the wall to see if they would stick in the process of, she Cause nagged of my dad death. to death. Mm-hmm. Nagging. Nagging. <laughs> so among the explosive allegations that the tabloids loved, I mean, this was all over the papers. So Jay Teodoro turns back up. Says hubby number one, um, you know, Muslim fighter. Kidnapper. (laughs) So he turns up and says that Rose met with him in the Philippines the week before Lang died and asked him to hire a hitman to have him killed. Oh, God, Jay, nobody needed you. A former housekeeper claimed that Lang had been murdered by a man in a tree whom she had warded off by sacrificing five white chickens. I don't know. It's the outback, man. I got nothing. 
Wow! Other servants testified that Rose would change the thermostat in their bedroom to make it hotter in the summer and colder in the winter. You know, just like making it uncomfortable for old Lang. Another said that she instructed the cook to feed Lang only fatty food, which Lang probably liked. <laughs> I don't know if that's bad. A former housekeeper testified that Rose wanted her to push her husband's wheelchair so hard that he would die. <laughs> For her part, Rose copped to having been addicted to painkillers at this time and to having had affairs while she was under the influence. The Guardian provided some coverage and used this quote from an Australian tabloid. I am back to reality, she said in 1999. What has the last 60 years been, Rosie? <laughs> Um, no, she continues, I was too busy screwing everyone, the doctors, Willie, when I was on the pethidine, the painkiller, for my back. I should have put a tattoo on one leg saying pay as you enter and a credit card on the other. <gasps> Very candid and candid. forthright. Candid and forthright, which I think is why Australia came to love her. It was looking pretty bad for Rose there for a while. Until one of the PIs that Gina had hired let it be known that Gina, in fact, had paid the witnesses to testify to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars. Gina had also learned that that alleged meeting in the Philippines where she allegedly asked for help hiring a kidnapper ex-husband. Yeah. 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 That that had never happened. Like Gina had learned that that had never happened. And she just kind of let the coroner keep thinking it had or that her evidence that it had was real or something. Anyway, Lang died of natural causes is the official statement of the coroner's office of but Western Australia. But not for lack of trying to get it classified as nagging. Nagging. Mm-hmm. Nagging. I gather that Rose remained something of a personality in Australia. She participated in an ad campaign for a brand of chopped tomatoes back in 2000-ish. The campaign used the slogan, Rich and Thick... There was a reality TV show called Rose in the early 2000s, but it didn't last that long. Oh, my. She sat for what was billed as her final interview in 2016 before leaving the country to move to Spain to study flamenco dancing. (laughs) Oh, good for her. How's that going? She uh, in, In the interview, she insisted that she would not have killed the goose that laid the golden egg. And in what I can only imagine is her final sign off to Gina, she told a current affairs Ray Martin in this interview, quote, If anyone said to my face, you're a bitch, I would say, thank you. How nice to be a bitch. You have to have style to be a bitch. I hope you bury me upside down so the world can kiss my sweet little ass. (laughs) Oh, wow. That is some trash candy. That is, uh, Australia. You never, ever let us down. Ever. Way to deliver, Australia. Seriously. So divorces represent perth and such yeah wow go perth go western australia yeah so i'm giving this 125 million trash cans uh-huh. which at some point in his run was the value of lang's fortune apparently i think by the time he died his lawyers were making the argument that he was in debt like hard to know exactly you know how rich people stash money so i don't know there may have been trusts and such. But yeah, 125 million trash cans. Are they filled with anything? Iron like ore. Asbestos? Tailored asbestos suits? Asbestos and iron ore. Koalas with chlamydia? I don't know if they have koalas that far over. 
I don't Australia, know. let us know. Yeah. Stacy, well done. That was really, really trashy. That one's for you, Straya. <laughs> Thank you, Jay. I had no idea how delightful that was going to be. Yeah. Thanks to the cats for like countless interruptions that you won't hear because we edit. Hey, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. We'll shake off that down under trash candy. Mm-hmm. We are coming back with a double length episode of a tale from old Hollywood. Golden age. Uh, Olivia de Havilland yeah. coming up right after we hear a word from our sponsors. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. There's never a wrong time to take a look at the things that are keeping you from living your best life. And if now is your moment, we recommend BetterHelp. BetterHelp is confidential, convenient, and safe professional counseling with your own licensed therapist. BetterHelp's quick questionnaire matches you with a counselor in under 24 hours, and you can message your counselor at any time, even between scheduled phone or video sessions. And if you're not clicking, that's fine. It is free to change counselors. BetterHelp is available worldwide. They offer specialized expertise that may not be available locally where you live. It's more affordable than traditional counseling. Financial aid is available as well. It has just never been easier to find a licensed professional counselor. In fact, there are so many people using BetterHelp that they are recruiting counselors in all 50 states. We want you to start living your happiest life today. As a Trashy Divorces listener, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash trashy. Join more than 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health. Visit betterhelp, that's betterhelp.com slash trashy. Hey, Trash Panda Nation, let's everyone just take a minute, give yourselves credit for getting to today, and now we cue Sir Elton John. I'm still standing. Would you like to say that you are standing better than I ever did about your personal finances? Our friends at the Oak Tree Group are ready and willing to help you. The mission of this all-female firm is to guide you through all phases of your financial journey using an intuitive and holistic approach. Best of all, Oak Tree Group is offering our Trashy Divorces listeners a free one-hour consultation with no obligation to talk about your financial concerns. Give the Oak Tree Group a call today at 770-319-1700 to set up your appointment. Again, that number is 770-319-1700. And you can always visit www.theoaktreegroup.net for more information. So, Alicia, you um, 
you expressed a great deal of sorrow at the passing of a renowned actress the other day. I did. This week with the passing of Olivia de Havilland at the well-lived age of 104. It's pretty remarkable. Pretty it, remarkable. She's a she's a badass. I would not be any kind of trash candy goddess if I did not tell the story of Olivia de Havilland. Olivia and her sister, Joan, Joan Fontaine, have been the subject for sister's story research spiderweb of mine for the longest. But the world spins like it does and things switch up. So I'm going to take the Olivia angle today, as she would insist that I should as the <laughs> older sibling. So you're saying maybe a bit of a rivalry? Oh, going on there. the rivalry between Olivia and Joan is intense. It was intense all the time from Joan's birth throughout each of their lives. They're the only sisters in history to have both won Best Actress Oscar Awards. Well, that is quite a thing. We're going to talk about it. We're also going to talk about what a totally badass chick Olivia de Havilland was. Two marriages, two divorces, two kids, 49 feature films, five Oscar nominations, two wins, and for real, a life on her own terms. She's a badass. Let's get into it. Olivia, born July 1st, 1916. She's a cancer girl. Her parents are well-to-do English folk. They live in Tokyo. They're embedded in the International District. And dad is a professor. He's also a lawyer for a bunch of patent holders. Hmm. Mom was an actress back in England. I mean, she's a Victorian lady, mm -hmm. so actress, she'll train at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Okay. But mom has many ambitions, but as a proper Victorian lady, you don't really get to live all your particular dreams, so mom is going to give up her career dream for marriage and babies. Seems like a normal, normal choice one made back But maybe then. like so many other stories that we've heard on our trashy little podcast, plants all of those missed opportunities mm. and ambition seeds into her daughters. So here comes baby Olivia, July 1st, 1916. And super big surprise, 15 months later, on October 22nd, 1917, here comes another daughter, Joan. Hmm. Who's a Scorpio. All right. So a little Irish twin action, more or less. Joan's born within the cusp of drama. Typically, Cancers and Scorpios really get along. They get each other. This is a terrific pairing. But I think we are looking here at birth order being a more significant factor than astrology. And thus the rivalry begins. Like from this moment. I'm so glad we talked about birth order last week. Joan will say that it was because of the Japanese culture they were in. And Olivia was not properly introduced to Joan in the major domo style of Japanese culture. See, Joan is a sickly kid. And so she is always put away. And Olivia is told, like, stay away from the baby. So the baby's not a plaything. Olivia's mad, kind of the Jones there, from 15 months onward, like intense competition. I can imagine there's some intense competition for the affections of both parents, mm -hmm. 
because their marriage is going south quick. Ah. Okay. Mom wants the hell out of Tokyo. Joan is sick. There's not the care we need to give her here. So in 1919, post-World War I, the family packs it on up and they begin to head back to England to get kids proper medical treatment. And they are waylaid in California on the way back over. And hey, San Francisco is pretty nice. Let's hang here for a minute and get the girls healthy. It's a warmer climate, sunshine, and oranges and all that shit. And dad's like, ah, no, I'm going to go on back to Tokyo. So the parents are done. Dad goes back to Tokyo and will, after the divorce from mom, marry again to the former housekeeper that they had in Tokyo. Yeah. Hard to see why they would have. The wife would have wanted to, see to why mom wanted to get out of Tokyo. Yeah. yeah. So now you have divorced mom, two kids, two children, two girls, like th- four and three. Like they're little. They'll move from San Francisco down to Saratoga, and there's so many feelings. Mm. All the feelings. Wait, Saratoga, New York? California. Yeah, it's a suburb of, it's like a fancy tancy suburb of. San Francisco, Saratoga. Okay. It's like the Aiken Winter Colony. All right. Yeah. It's fancy. They stay in Saratoga, California. Okay. And mom is super determined that her girls are going to be all proper like. Like she was rata trained, right? Joan will say their mom was concerned with any possibility of sloppy speech from the two of them. So Olivia and Joan were made to recite Shakespeare from the time that they could read, and they had to do it properly. If they did not do it properly, their knuckles would get wrapped if they slurred or mispronounced words or cadence. Hmm. They're taking ballet lessons from about the age of five, piano lessons, singing lessons, French lessons, too. Joan will say later in life, all of this made she and Olivia perfect equipment For their careers, right? Mom also will reveal to Olivia later that she may have actually been professional acting and her best performance may have been in Tokyo for the visiting Duke of Connaught. Olivia will say, Mommy never told me until much later. She didn't want me to know she'd actually worked professionally as opposed to the amateur theatricals I had been aware of. Because see, amateur acting is fine. But professional acting is, you're a fallen woman. Olivia goes on. When I was five, I discovered a secret box that contained mummy's stage makeup. It was like finding buried treasure. I tried the rouge, the eyeshadow, the lipstick, but I couldn't get the rouge off. Mummy spanked me terribly. Never do this again, she yelled at me and ordered me never to tell my sister. Joan feels like mom loves Olivia more. Olivia resents the attention she's lost from mom that's given to Joan. They slap each other. Healthy. They fight a lot. Olivia gets mad that Joan is getting her clothes hand-me-downs. So Olivia will cut them up into pieces before Joan can get them leaving Joan to learn a new skill of domestic abilities and learn how to sew. This is where the stories diverge, okay? Because Olivia says before the acting feud, 
They were affectionate and loving. Olivia will recount how she adored playing big sister. Joan would climb into the bed with her and put her little head on my shoulder and ask me to tell her a story. And Olivia would tell fairy tales about rabbits and other creatures. And Joan loved them. Like, Joan gets the first view of Olivia's talent, right? Apparently, her animal imitations are a big thing. They continue throughout her life. Olivia will say, this is such a tender little story, like I identify with this. Joan was so sick and depressed, the thing she loved most was her patent leather cat, which somehow lost its voice. When you squeezed, it used to meow, but it broke. So I began meowing when Joan squeezed the cat, and she loved it, and it got better. She was so darling, with these adorable freckles on her nose and a ducktail of blonde hair, cute as a button. I loved her so much as a child. And then we grew up. No. Well, apparently the seeds are, if the seeds hadn't already been planted with birth order, the seeds are planted here because Olivia and Joan are taking private art lessons and the teacher has a pool in their backyard. And one day on break, Joan, who's playing in the pool, she's five, calls over Olivia, grabs her by the ankle and tries to pull her in the water. Olivia says, She had never been rambunctious like that before, so it took me completely unaware. Olivia is stronger than Joan. So Joan, instead of pulling Olivia into the pool, Joan ends up chipping her own collarbone on the pool ledge Ah. and has to wear a cast. Right. Olivia gets punished for that. Not Joan for trying to murder her sister, But Olivia gets punished because Joan got hurt Mm -hmm. in her attempts to murder Olivia. There was some light roughhousing and a fairly normal kind of injury that might happen from a little roughhousing happened. Right. Right. And instead of both of the kids being in trouble for (laughs) roughhousing. Olivia says this is when it starts. Now, Joan, in her memoir says this story takes place 10 years later when they're teenagers. I was going to say that that's awful. Yeah, like five and six just seems like a very early age to begin not forgiving people for minor You'd infractions. Like to think so. But there's this fantastic little story in Life magazine in 1942. This is the year of the sisters competing for the Oscar 1942. That's oh that year. Uh, This life profile, quote, at the age of nine, Joan decided she would kill her sister. She thought it all out very carefully. She would let Olivia hit her once and then again in silence. But after a third blow, she would plug Olivia between the eyes. Joan would plead self-defense, and that would be the end of Olivia as her problem. Plug as in like shoot? Possibly. I don't know. Okay. Like Joan wants to kill Olivia. Okay. Okay. That's normal. So, mom stuff. No, this is where I'm really intrigued because mom continues to pit them together in this weird sort of. They're always competing. It. I don't. Mom is not happy. Mm -hmm. Mom has fighting girls. Things are going pretty shitty. So let's go ahead and throw some fuel into the fire. Mom is going to hook up with this dude. He owns a department store in Saratoga. His name is George Fontaine. Mom and George are going to get married in 1925. Olivia's eight, Joan's seven. 
give or take some months. But stepdad is a dick. He is a super dick. He is strict. He is harsh. He's mean. They, oh God. Olivia calls him the Iron Duke and he likes to beat them. He'll give them a choice of punishments. So you can have a tablespoon of cod liver oil, which will make you throw up. You can get whacked on your shins with a wooden clothes hanger. One time, Olivia has 22 bruises on her legs, and the school intervenes well, to the stepdad. Like, you need to cease and desist. He does not cease and desist. And Olivia and Joan, instead of pairing together to defeat the Iron Duke competitive go against each other so they'll provoke each other to getting into trouble just like the pool thing i'm gonna provoke you and get you punished for something i do Mm -hmm. okay there's some attempts to run away from both of them mom is pretty sick most of the time and hospitalized so here dickhead abusive stepdad has two troubled teens in his home and he isn't helping anything at all So this is where Olivia de Havilland kind of begins her streak of, I'll do it myself, thanks. So she's going to disobey stepdad and joins the cast of a school play. Stepdad finds out and he gives her an ultimatum thinking, always give your kids an ultimatum because it's going to go exactly the way you think it's going to go. It always does. Always does. You need to uh, quit the play or leave the house forever. Olivia de Havilland is 16, and she's like, bye-bye. I thought you'd never ask. 22 bruises, asshole. See ya. See ya. Yeah, she's out. So she's living on her own. And Joan is like a year younger, but Joan's like, cool. I wasn't aware that was something a person could do, because I'm out of here too. So Joan takes off to live with dad and new wife in Tokyo. Seriously? Mm -hmm. Wow. So there's a lot happening in the family dynamic. Okay, so Livy's out. She's going to finish high school anyway. She's going to do so well in high school that she gets a scholarship to Mills College, which is like the Ivy League of the West Coast for girls, right? Like, whatever ass face stepdad, I don't need you. I'll do it myself. Thanks. She's going to go to college. She's going to train to be a teacher, which is your career of choice. Well, if sure. you're a woman, a woman and you yeah. wanted a career. Okay, awesome. But uh, what was the nursing school all full up? <laughs> <laughs> but Olivia de Havilland doesn't get an Oscar for being teacher of the year. What happens, <laughs> right? So in addition to school, Olivia is doing some work in Saratoga at the community theater, which is awesome. She likes to do amateur theatricals, Right. In this season, the company in Saratoga is producing a Midsummer Night's Dream. And Olivia is cast as Hermia. Awesome. She's delightful. And one night during the run of that local community theater, the assistant to Max Reinhardt, legendary director-producer, is in the audience. An assistant man dude is like, wowza, that Hermia is amazing. And Max Reinhardt just happens to be staging a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream to be run at the Hollywood Bowl for like a hot minute. And stars aligning the way they do, Olivia is cast as the understudy for the actress who is starring as Hermia. She already knows the lines and everything. Like, it's great. 
She's the understudy. So all she needs to do is hit the actress with a cast iron skillet? Doesn't even have to do that. She just thinks it's cool. Mm -hmm. Like, I get to hang out behind the scenes at the Hollywood Bowl. This is great. A week before the production, the actress playing Hermia drops out. Hmm. And to the stage, it is Olivia de Havilland. And she is so fucking good that the role never gets recast. And Olivia stays for the entire production, which kind of sends Mills College out the window. Because this is what happens next. The Midsummer's Night Dream Company goes out on tour across only to have Max Reinhardt get called by Hollywood. Hey, I hear you have a pretty good production already ready. Do you want to come to Hollywood and make a Midsummer's Night stream a movie? And Max is like, sure, that sounds great. So an 18-year-old Olivia de Havilland will sign her first now contract a, with Warner Brothers. A movie star, just like that. I'll do it myself, thanks. It's my first part ever. I, like, just... <laughs> Come on. So, like, Olivia de Havilland is a hit. And Warner Brothers is like, well, shit, what do we do with her now? This is like 1934, right? She's atypical. She's fabulous, but she's not a sex kitten. She's not a vamp. She has this class and dignity and grace about her that isn't a lot of actresses until Joan comes to town. But Olivia is, like, about to be a big star, and that's not going to work. For Joni. Joan returns from Tokyo, finds her sister about to be a fucking movie star. And Joan is like, uh, nobody. And Olivia is like, Joan, you're a kid. Go to finishing school. You're a society lady, not an actress. Like, you're going to be so great being a society broad in San Francisco. I'm going to leave that to you. That's your place. My place is here in Hollywood as a famous actress. And Joan is like, nobody, I'm going to do what you're doing. So Olivia, oh my God, is doing great. Things are about to really break out for her. Mom is living with Olivia and Joan moves in too. Joan gets a little resentful because she's, you know, chauffeuring Olivia around. Wait, so did mom ditch... Dickhead stepdad? To come and momager Olivia, yeah. Okay. Even though Olivia will say, like, my mom didn't manage me, but yeah, mom okay. came down and lived with Olivia and Joan in the early part of her career. Mm-hmm. Okay. Joan moves in to help Olivia. And Joan is, like, wanting to make her own career now because she wants to be an actress, too. Joan said, no thanks. I don't want your tuition money, Olivia, to go to a proper school I want to be you. Now, Olivia has claimed de Havilland as her acting name. And Olivia is like, oh, hell no. You're not going to take the name de Havilland and you're not going to work for Warner Brothers. I'm not sharing my studio with you. And Joan, Scorpio, is like, okay, I'll do it my own way. So Olivia is breaking out in films beginning in 1935 with uh, Warner Brothers' new star, Errol Flynn. She is his love interest in nine films. Nine. And these are like the Independence Day, Armageddon. These are the summer blockbusters. They're swashbucklers. They're production out the hilt. And their chemistry is super intense. Like, they flirt. Like, they have a thing on screen. And it's no wonder she gets cast in nine of these films because they're magnetic. 
but Errol Flynn is married. And Olivia thinks he's super sexy and everything, but she refuses to be the other woman. Not going to happen. Well, it almost happens in 1937 after three years of this intense, right, right. right? Because Errol Flynn is finally separated from his wife and Olivia and Errol have a romantic night at the Coconut Grove Lounge. And she's like, it's great that you're separated, but you really need to get divorced for this to happen. And he will not. Errol Flynn will reunite with his wife, leaving Olivia de Havilland single and ready for something. 1938. It appears the 98-pound Olivia de Havilland by this point is also probably suffering from anorexia, even though nobody called it that then. But she's busy and she's tired because she's worked nonstop and she's in the Hollywood system and mom is like, Olivia, you need a break. Let's go to England. Joan will stay behind because Joan has somehow talked her way into a role on George Cooker's The Women. Mom and Olivia will sail on the Normandy. This is supposed to be a vacay. But Jack Warner, who is a total dickhead, tells the press because Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland have starred in The Adventures of Robin Hood, and it's about to be released. Gotcha. Okay. okay. So Jack Warner lets the British press know, and they are waiting at the docks. Olivia hides in the bathroom. She and mom take their vacay. They go to plays. They visit Stratford-upon-Avon. Olivia will eventually end up giving in to Jack Warner and the media. She does this press junket day one day at the Savoy. But she returns to America, still 98 pounds, but rested and ready for her next adventure. Okay. Just spider webs. So she gets back, and one night there's this party. At the home of one of her former boyfriends. He's a British actor. He's also a pilot. His name is Brian Ahern. Olivia takes Joan to the party. At the party, there's also a fortune teller who tells Joan that she will find her huge success if she has a name that is eight letters long and begins with an F. And there's Fontaine, stepdad's name. So Joan Fontaine has her new acting name the fortune teller will also predict that joan will marry the host of the party which she does she marries brian ahern in 1939 olivia's ex-boyfriend who is 15 years older than her because that's a surefire way to get to my sister huh (laughs) dude it is always she got married first like there's this famous line that she has about, I got married first, I had the first kid. If I die first, she'll be jealous of that too. Let's, <laughs> we'll talk about it. Oh my it. God. Okay. It's always a competition. Joan right now sees herself as winning in the sister game. Joan has wormed her way onto the women. She, Joan, will also go on the following year to be cast in Rebecca, which is a magnificent movie. Joan will also go on to say that because she was cast in Rebecca, she graciously offered the part of Melanie Wilkes in Gone with the Wind to her sister Olivia as the cast-off. I'm cast. You can't have me, but would my sister do? Right. I'm very busy. The truth is Have you heard about my sister Olivia? Yeah. The truth is a little more complicated. I'm sure. Yeah. 
Olivia is under contract with Warner Brothers. And Jack Warner, as we have already seen, is not the greatest guy in the world. And he's not going to let her out of playing the love interest to Errol Flynn in the block. I mean, that's bankable guaranteed money, right? But Olivia de Havilland is like, I can do more than this kind of role. I'm an actress and all I'm this is a waste of my time. I'm not being used to my potential. There's some behind the scenes things where Olivia will end up inviting Jack Warner's wife, Anne, out to the Brown Derby for tea. And there's some lady finagling. And then there's a horse trade with Jimmy Stewart getting lent to Warner Brothers in return for Olivia getting lent to David O'Selznick for Gone with the Wind. So yes, it was more complicated than... Way more complicated. So Olivia takes the character of Melanie Wilkes, who is kind of a, like, what could totally be a rotten character, and turns Melanie Wilkes into a thing of beauty, and deservedly gets the Best Supporting Actress nod along with most of the cast and crew for the cinematic achievement that Gone with the Wind is. Olivia will lose that Best Supporting Actress Oscar to her co-star, Hattie McDaniel, first black actress to receive an Oscar. Great for Hattie. Sad for Olivia. Until two weeks after just abject misery about losing, Olivia wakes up and she has an epiphany. Quote, My whole perspective changed. I realized why it was destined that I lose. I was nominated as Best Supporting Actress, but that was the wrong category. I wasn't supporting. I was the star, too. That was just a ploy by David on behalf of Vivian. Hattie was supporting, but she was the best. Plus, it was wonderful that she should win. Once I understood the system, I didn't feel horrible at all. There was a God, after all. Unquote. Olivia's like, I'm not supporting I'm an I'm best actress. Wow. Yeah. I guess that's one way to I guess having a little psychotic break there is a fine way to get over your misery about not winning. Okay. Okay. I am glossing over the Gone with the Wind part because this would take over the entire episode. I started this week actually intending on telling y'all about the trashy divorce of Irene. Selznick and David O. Selznick, which has all the Gone with the Wind stuff in there. So it's not forgotten. Don't tell me all your fun Gone with the Wind facts. They're coming. It's a much more interesting story, I think, that fits along in the Selznick narrative better. I'm not ignoring it. I'm not ignoring your plane <laughs> of cries for trash. It just doesn't belong in this story. Okay. So Olivia, happy for Hattie. We'll go on to... Forget the supporting nonsense. It is best actress or nothing. So here she's got star treatment with Selznick and Gone with the Wind and heads back to Warner Brothers and they're giving her the same shitty roles that she had before. A few other things to mention here. 1938, Olivia de Havilland has a new boyfriend. Your favorite guy. He of the jewelry tray. Oh. Howard Hughes, who has oh. been so... Super dumped. I was like, Rudy Giuliani? <laughs> the man with the jewels. He has been super dumped by Catherine Hepburn. And he's kind of lonely. 
Olivia sees Howard dancing with Dolores Del Rio at the Trocadero one night and like swoons. Maybe she just sees the jewelry tray. I don't know. It's probably the jewelry tray. But Howard Hughes likes him classy and he's just been dumped by Catherine of Arrogant. So he's going to wine and dine Olivia for like a hot minute. Olivia also is going to date a pilot named James Stewart, not the actor Jimmy Stewart. Totally different James Stewart. James Stewart will propose marriage. And she's like, no, I'm not ready to settle down. I'm good. Like, she's, he gets shipped off to war. That love affair is over. She and Howard fizzle out. Not before she becomes a certified pilot, though. Interesting. So that's fun. Okay. Oh, so she flew away. Okay. (laughs) With all of her jewels. (laughs) Now, Olivia is going to begin now a love affair with John Houston, who is terribly married. And for Olivia not wanting to be the other woman with Errol Flynn all those years ago, Mm -hmm. she is totally about to be with John Houston. She says he was the love of her life. John Houston is a Leo man, August 5th. He is 10 years older than Olivia. He is directing a movie that she is starring in, along with Betty Davis, called In This Our Life. And wow, Olivia is getting all the good camera angles. And Betty Davis is really, really mad about I it. I bet. To where there is a conference. Olivia and Betty are both shown the dailies. And John Houston has to reshoot parts of the movie. Wow. Because that's how awesome Olivia looks and how rotten it's like ruining the film his infatuation with Olivia to have right don't know if you've heard about John Houston he is a notorious womanizer and Olivia de Havilland in the famous words of all women those four famous words I can fix him got it the trick with John Houston is you don't like him too much if He's chasing you. He needs that chase. He has to have the chase. Mm-hmm. You can't like him too much. If you like him too much, he it, doesn't like it's you. It's bored, yeah. Mm-hmm. Olivia de Havilland is wrapped. Uh, like, head over heels. Oh, no. She does not make the chase very hard. This is the dude that she wants to marry. She won't marry him, but it's not for lack of trying. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a lot happening in 1941. Remember, both Olivia and Joan were big in movies that year. Joan, after Rebecca, will go on to start another Hitchcock film, Suspicion. Olivia has done a movie called Hold Back the Dawn. So just know that's brewing in the background. Also, Olivia is filming This Is Our Life. This is with Betty Davis. They're playing sisters. And this is the film right where... John Houston is head over heels in love with Olivia and giving her all the good shots. And mm-hmm. they're right. both made to like bring in the dailies and they hate each other. Like Bet is already not a fan. Olivia really admires Betty Davis and Betty Davis is like, what are you doing? Like you, you peasant, you know, like nothing. So the studio is like, John Houston, you need to work this out. So John Houston goes to Betty Davis and he's like, Hey, you know, all of that unrequited love you have for William Wyler because he's married too and you love him so much and it's an impossible situation. That's just the way that Olivia loves me. I'm married and it's an impossible situation. And it turns out that you two are two dames on the same sea on the same ship. (laughs) Apparently this nonsense works. Because Olivia and Betty Davis become good friends. Oh, interesting. They're going to appear together again in this film in 1964 called Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte as sisters again. And it is as close to a horror film without being a horror film. It is excellent. It plays on, um, it's very uh, Dexter-like. Okay. Okay, because you know, like, it has that same kind of psychological effect. It's a really good film. Not that's. 20 years down the road. Okay. 1941, (laughs) both Joan for Suspicion and Olivia for Hold Back the Dawn nominated for Best Actress Oscar. So let's get to the Oscar Awards, February 1942. And it is awkward enough. Two sisters nominated for Best Actress. But there's John Huston in the audience sitting with his wife, Leslie Black, who's making googly eyes and blowing kisses at Olivia de Havilland the whole time. Awkward. Not classy, dude. (laughs) Okay, which gets the press riled up in the second place, because they're already riled up with all the sister rivalry. Olivia and John Houston are like the worst kept secret in Hollywood. Everybody knows they're doing it, and similar to uh, Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford the press roots for them, right? Well, of course they should be together. So the press is like, well, of course Olivia is going to be the next Mrs. John Houston as soon as this one gets out of the way. Don't blow kisses at your mistress at the Oscars, Not, dude. N- no. Okay. So Joan and Olivia, both nominated for Best Actress, sitting at the same table. Olivia, who has dreamed since her defeat of Best Supporting Act. It's not Best Supporting. I right, am I'm Best right. Actress. She's convinced she's going to win this year, but she does not. Joan wins. And Olivia is so excited at the table 
she claps and she says, we got it. Like she's excited for her sister. Joan ignores her. Or at least that's what the press captures in photos is a total and complete snub from Joan to Olivia, which only throws fuel on the sister feud. Sure. Okay. Well, because Joan's been fantasizing about murdering her sister since... Pretty much since childhood. childhood. Okay. Mm -hmm. Joan will later say that she was paralyzed. She had paralysis. She didn't think she was going to win. I never saw her. Like, the room went... Like, I didn't see her. It was not an intentional snub. Could be true. I'm sure that's a really weird moment. Is I have not won an Academy Award yet. I don't know for sure. I... But I bet it's probably weird. I bet it's pretty weird. But with the snub and the win and it gossip call, I mean, you got Luella Parsons, you got Hedda Hopper, like it is the trash candy of the day. And the press is going to make this feud into a big thing from here. A lot of stuff gets made up. Some of it's true, but you have two sisters competitive from birth now in the same pool of swimmers. Yikes on bikes. Okay. Joan will say. They tried to get us in the same picture often, but that would have been another Hiroshima. Yikes. Another of my favorite Joan Fontaine quotes. She's a lion and I am a tigress and they do not get along. Joan doesn't do herself too many favors in this. Okay. So John Houston at this point called off to war and Olivia de Havilland is at home and, you know, maybe needing something a little, you know, to do. Feeling cute. Might take on the Supreme Court and Warner Brothers later. I don't know. Because she does. Olivia de Havilland is so tired of getting crap parts. She is finally in 1942 coming up on her end of the seven-year contract mm. that she has with Jack Warner and Warner Brothers. Right. And remember, Jack Warner has been rotten to her all those years. Yeah, of course you're going to do a press junket when you're on vacation. Right. Right. Okay, so Olivia has waited for seven years to get out from under the thumb of Jack Warner. She wants better roles, better parts, better money. And uh, she's on her way out the door. And Jack Warner's like, not so fast there, little lady. Remember all those times you turned your little nose up at those crap scripts I was offering you? You know, because you wanted to control your image in your career. And when you turned your nose up at it, you decided to be suspended. All of those months of suspension actually attach onto your contract. Oh, God. So... I actually own you for 24 more weeks, and that means you can't negotiate with any other studio. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Also, these are predatory people. Exactly. Also, here's a script of the new movie that I just lent you out for because I made a shit ton of money on your collateral in this deal I made with this other studio, but you're not going to see any of that money. Olivia, a little badassy, cancer girl. She's a little mad, but she shows up to the shoot. With their little script. Script's not ready. Movie's not going to start anywhere close to time, which would push her contract back even more. And she's like, fuck that. So she goes to an attorney. The attorney is like, hey, I've looked at all the big fat books on my shelf. And turns out California law says that a contract can only last seven years. Calendar date to calendar date. Mm. There's no special add-ons. There's no provision for anything yeah, different or unusual dates of enforcement. What yeah. Jack Warner's doing is against the law. It's illegal. 
So Olivia de Havilland is going to sue Warner Brothers. Now, other stars, Betty Davis, Humphrey Bogart, back in the 30s, tried taking on the studio system, but never with this particular law. They tried it in other ways and were defeated and just went back into the cycle. Not Olivia de Havilland. Olivia de Havilland is in court for two years. It will go to the Supreme Court in a unanimous decision from the Supreme Court The thing called the de Havilland Law is created, given her name, which limits the power of studios over their stars. It gives stars greater freedom to seek projects that they feel suit them and sets a precedent for workers not only in entertainment and acting, but also in music and in sports. Most recently, Jared and Shannon Leto of 30 Seconds to Mars sued using the de Havilland law and won. Hmm. All right. Takes on the Supreme Court and wins. She's Olivia de Havilland. (laughs) She's a badass. The de Havilland law, right? Also during this time, uh, John Kennedy comes back. He's visiting Robert Stack after his uh, PT-109 cruiser days. And Olivia de Havilland turns him down. She says, sorry, I got to rehearse, man. (sighs) Sorry. Okay. Olivia taking on the Supreme Court is super great. Great for the future, crappy for then because she's not working. She's ousted. Right. right. She gets no roles for like two years. She's like, screw this. She'll join the USO. She'll take off and support the soldiers fighting. She's going to get really sick when she's overseas. So she is kind of bedridden for a few months along the way. She's still longing for John Houston. He was also in the war effort, essentially sleeping his way around the world. Um, (laughs) John Houston will not divorce Leslie Black until 1945. Incidentally, that same year. When when the war ends. Mm -hmm. When he has to return to her. When he has to return to her, he will finally divorce her. Gotcha. Also, 1945 is the year that Joan Fontaine's first marriage to Brian Ahern falls apart. Okay. Okay. So Joan, who is winning, mm-hmm. I have the Oscar, I have the husband. The kids, I, and the husband is your ex-boyfriend. Right. Olivia is like, um, yeah, I have a Supreme Court decision. I changed Hollywood for everyone, and uh, I'm just getting started. Okay. After the war, Olivia comes on back. She'll get a new three-picture deal contract. Her life's back on track. And Olivia and John will reunite kind of on and off. And Olivia just continues to kind of wait on the vine for him. Like, all right, you're divorced. It's definitely time for us to get married. Let me chase, chase, chase you. And that doesn't work Mm -hmm. because John Houston goes even dirtier. He will get married in the summer of 1946. But not to her. Not to Olivia, but to her Gone with the Wind co-star, Evelyn Keys, who played (sighs) Sue Ellen. Dirty. Olivia brokenhearted big piece of advice don't get married because you're rebounding will marry the guy that she is dating now she has husband like a few weeks after they get married she rebounds into marriage this is 1946 this guy's name is marcus goodrich he's a texan he's a navy vet he's a journalist he wrote this world war one battleship novel called delilah he's 18 years older than she is wow mm-hmm Weird choice. Okay. I guess I need to be married, too. Okay. 1947. Year after. Olivia de Havilland does 
finally get her Best Actress Oscar for To Each His Own. And Joan's there. And Joan, for the last year since Olivia got married, has been bad-mouthing her all over town. Quote, all I know about him, about Marcus, quote, all I know about him is that he's had four wives and written one book. Too bad it's not the other way around. She's trashing Olivia's husband all over town. Joan is like seriously a fine one to talk because she has remarried in 1946 as well to this guy named William Dozier, another actor. <laughs> when Olivia wins her award, she will snub Joan in that Oscar ceremony. I'm certain. Just like that. They don't talk for five years after that. Olivia and Marcus have a kid, Benjamin, in 1949. And Olivia's like, dude, I've been working for a long time. I'm going to step away, get out of the limelight. I'm going to be a mom for a little while. Stay at home. Which gives her a ideal opportunity to realize that she does not like her husband very much at all. Wow. Jump ahead to 2020 and like, <laughs> how many people have discovered that their spouse, their children, it's all bad. Olivia and Marcus divorce by 1953. Olivia is kind of over the States. The 50s internationally are way more exciting than what's going on in Eisenhower's America. And I have a lot of access. So where should I go? Well, first, in 1952, as the marriage is falling apart, she takes herself and Benjamin to France. She's a guest at the Cannes Film Festival that year. Hmm. And even before she gets there, it's kind of a ruffle because she asked the film committee for two tickets. And they're like, nah, dude, we're not flying your lover out here. There's plenty of sex right here in France. And she's like, nah, it's for my kid. And they're like, oh, okay. So... This becomes a thing. So she is met by a deluge of press when she arrives. She's endeared to the French because of this. And everybody's waiting. All the French press, including a Frenchman named Pierre Gallant, who is the editor of Paris Match magazine. He's kind of quiet at first. He's tagged along with her and her press agent. And then eventually Pierre just kind of shamelessly goes for it. He's holding her hand in the taxi. He's following her around France. He'll get invited to every party. She gets invited to Elsa Maxwell has put together this like society cruise in the Greek Isles. And he, Olivia's on that. So is Pierre. Pierre is smitten kitten and he's going to get his girl. Here's the fun thing about Pierre Gallant as well. He is the editor for Paris Match. He's also a matchmaker matchmaker. He hooked up Grace Kelly and her Monaco Prince hmm. and connected them for the romance of the century. Well, matchmaker. All right. Olivia and Pierre get married in April 1955. Huh. They get a five-story home in Paris. She's going to live there till her death. She lives there from 56 or 58 on to... Last week, Pierre and Olivia have a daughter, Giselle, in 1956. Olivia loves life in France. She says, I loved being around real buildings, real castles, real churches, right. not ones made of canvas. There were real cobblestones. Somehow the cobblestones amazed me. And when I would meet a prince or a duke, he was a real prince, a real duke. Kind of a fun thing. 
Olivia will head back to Hollywood in 1957 for this charity ball. And she realizes she does not miss anything about Hollywood. So she goes to the gala and there's this creeper, this old creeper, gaunt, his clothes don't fit, just kind of stalking her. And she's doing the best she can to talk to other people. But this creeper is still creeping on her. And, uh, and it was Howard Hughes. No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> there's a, a, out of nowhere, there's a kiss on the back of her neck. And it's the creeper. And she turns around and she's like, do I know you? And he says, it's Errol. Oh, my and God. And Olivia says, Errol who? How many Errols are there in Hollywood? This is how, like, he was that um, dull and lifeless in his eyes. So the bell gets called for dinner and Errol is like, can I escort you to dinner? So great. They, here comes Robin Hood and Maid Marian all these years later. This is Olivia's telling quote. The moment we sat down, the table filled up with seven or eight beautiful young ladies. Errol comes to life and turns on the charm. Olivia continues. Somehow I couldn't help myself from being increasingly enraged that Errol Flynn was paying more attention to the other ladies at the table than he was to me. Here I was, living in Paris, happily married to a wonderful Frenchman, two great children. Why was I having a fit of jealousy over Errol Flynn? They barely speak the rest of the night. When the thing's over, she says goodnight. She leaves in a cab by herself. From this point, 1957 onward, Olivia's only going to appear in 10 more feature films. Flynn will die two years after this in 1959 at the age of 50. That's how much he doesn't look like himself. 50. 50. Yeah, I feel like uh, I had read at some point that he had a pretty rocky life. Mm -hmm. So, Pretty much. Olivia writes a memoir in 1962 called Every Frenchman Has One, <laughs> recounting anecdotes of living as a foreigner in France. Now, here is why Olivia de Havilland is a classy broad. She and Pierre separate in 1962, but they still live together for like the next decade hmm. to take care of their child. They remain good friends. Their divorce is not finalized until 1979. Wow. So their marriage lasts from 55 to 79, mm -hmm. which gives them three times the longevity of a marriage that was really done in seven years. Right. She'll take care of him when he's ill and die. Like, remain grand friends, but no, mm -hmm. they just stay married for 20 years. But yeah, eventually they do end in 1979. Yeah, there's, so, there's so much trash. Like, there's a big thing in the 1963 Oscars where Betty Davis and Joan Fontaine are fighting, but that's not the story for today. Ooh, 1964, Betty and Olivia and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. God, so good. In 1965, Olivia becomes the first woman to helm the jury at the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. So that's kind of exciting. She and Joan still talk. Like, they are... Have this written... They stopped talking for a few years after those 1947 Oscars. But once Joan splits from William Dozier in 1952, which she's going to do, she and Olivia reunite. They visit throughout the 50s. They spend Christmas together in 1961. They go to this party in 1967 together for Marlena Dietrich. Hmm. Great. Joan Fontaine says... The public takes glee in this. They don't print the nice things. We took our dad's ashes into the English Channel at sunset. No one printed that time we had together. Olivia came to New York and I gave her a party. Nobody writes about that. 
The press makes us feud more than we really do because it justifies their own feelings that a lot of families don't get along. We are rivals. We are sisters. We are competitive, but we are sisters. Okay. They're still hanging. The feud is in the press, not necessarily with them until 1975. 1975, their mom is ill with terminal cancer. It's bad. Olivia wants mom to consult doctors and have surgery and do everything she can to extend her life. And mom wants to die. Mom is like, I have terminal cancer. I want to die. This is my decision. And Joan is like, hey, Olivia, this is what mom wants to do. So around parent care, this is where it all sort of comes to a head. Mom will pass away. Joan is on tour. Olivia sends Joan a telegram that never gets to Joan. So Joan doesn't find out mom passed away until two weeks after mom passed away. Oh, my God. Olivia does not invite Joan to the memorial service for mom held at the Saratoga Community Theater where Olivia got her start all those years ago that is now named after mom, by the way. Okay. Joan is going to show up at the service anyway. It's pretty bad. The feud is really, really on now. And then in 1978, Joan is going to write her book called No Bed of Roses. <laughs> Olivia calls this book No Shred of Truth. <laughs> Joan Fontaine is angry, and she lets it all fly. This is where she gives the infamous quote to People magazine during her book presser. You can divorce your sister as well as your husband's. I don't see her at all, and I don't intend to. I got married first, got an Academy Award first, had a child first. If I die, she'll be furious, because again, I'll have got there first. Oh. She does die first, yes? She does. Okay. She does. Joan will say, I regret that I remember not one act of kindness from Olivia all through my childhood. Olivia made up a squeaker sound for your patent little <laughs> leather cat, dude. Like, I don't know. Joan will write in Bed of Roses, all the animus we felt toward each other as children, the hair pullings, the savage wrestling matches, the time Olivia fractured my collarbone, all came rushing back in kaleidoscopic imagery. My paralysis was total. This was about the 42 Oscars. It's just bad. So Joan is giving all these pressers trashing Olivia. Olivia is much classier about it. Olivia will say Joan had a lot of dash that men admired immensely. Because Joan is fucking Prince Ali Khan, Adelaide Stevenson, and Howard Hughes. She goes after him too, Joan. The jewelry tray guy. It's just... <laughs> Olivia says, I don't have the flair, dash, and style of Joan. So, No Bed of Roses sort of is the uh, final break in the two of them. And they don't talk for near on 40 years. Wow. Yeah. To even where Joan's daughters are mad at her because Joan's daughters carry on a relationship with Olivia that's hidden to Joan. Olivia, famously quiet. On this subject for all of those years. In an interview in Vanity Fair from 2016, apparently they reconnected about faith in church. Their paternal grandfather was an Anglican priest in Guernsey. So 
they, I don't think, I think they talked before Joan did pass away, which she does in 2013, where Olivia is very sad. Olivia says, a, a feud implies continuing hostile conduct between two parties. I cannot think of a single instance wherein I initiated hostile behavior. Sometimes I've been defensive. On my part, it was always loving, but sometimes estranged and in the later years, severed. <sighs> okay, what else? Living to Howland, dude. Living La Vie en Rose. Happy as an escargot in France, man. She takes a few more roles. She'll win a Golden Globe in 1978 for Anastasia, The Mystery of Anna. She'll take a role in Airport 77. Oh, both Olivia and Joan are honored at the 1979 Oscars, but they sit on opposite mm. ends of the theater. They're nowhere close. Hmm. Uh, there's one time that Joan Fontaine checks into a hotel and finds Olivia's in the suite next to hers and demands that the room must be changed. Hmm. 1988, Olivia makes her last screen performance and she's in Paris. She writes, like she goes out sometimes, but she is doing everything she likes in the place she likes best in the world. Everything's yeah. great. She will be a presenter in 2003 at the 75th Academy Awards. She gets a four minute standing ovation. French lover. They claim her as their own. Sarkozy presents her with the Legion to honor. Like, oh, mm -hmm. uh, ooh. So Ida Lupino, when mm -hmm. she dies, she's a famous actress. Okay. Famous star. Gives Olivia de Havilland her teddy bear collection. Olivia de Havilland will raffle and sell this in order to raise funds to restore the church. She, Olivia, has honorary trustees and degrees, and she's awesome. Olivia will attribute her amazingly healthy longevity to three L's. Love, laughter, and light. <laughs> she did the Times crossword puzzle every day, a passion she developed as a teenager. Looks at every pain or symptom as a mystery to be solved and conquered, not a harbinger of doom. No one on earth is more positive. A lot of her precepts for perpetual health are those she learned in Campfire Girls, where her name was Thunderbird. <laughs> Olivia passed away last week, July 25th. 2020 at the age of 104 she wanted to live to 110 that was her goal she's like i don't need to write my memoirs yet it'll be the best book anybody's ever written but i don't need to write it yet because i'm gonna live to be 110 got really close thunderbird got really close so that is the not even trashy tale of olivia de Havilland. it's trash candy surrounding her but whoa Class, beauty, changes the Hollywood system for everyone. I'll do it myself, thanks. She has no bad performances. She is a wonderful actress. There's enduring respect for her work. She's the last of a legacy, hmm. Olivia de Havilland. All right. <sighs> Sounds like your sister was kind of a piece of work. <laughs> I really did want to focus on Olivia in this and just mm -hmm. bring in Joan where she was yeah. important to the narrative. But Joan Fontaine is probably a trashy divorces all on her own. I think the part that resonates most with me is child murderer, leaving America and living out your life in Europe. <laughs> 
Oh, so Olivia de Havilland becomes an American citizen in 1943. Because her parents were English, but she was born in Japan, etc. Yeah? Correct. Okay. So she's kind of an international kid, but she will get her American citizenship in 1943, only to live out the rest of her life in France. Right. Which I guess if you marry a Frenchman, you get dual. I don't know. Probably. I think if you're a famous Hollywood star, the French are more than happy to let you live in Paris with them. (laughs) If you're Olivia de Havilland, they think she is sexy AF too. And like Olivia was never like, ooh, she's the sexiest. She's always like girl next door and just lovely. But the French, va, 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 voom. They like classy. Olivia de Havilland, y'all. Hell of a broad. Enduring legacy. That's all we got, y'all. Everybody have a great day. Thanks for coming back for part two. Yep. You're the best. You're awesome. You rock. You're the tops. Keep it classy, everyone. So classy and trashy all together. Simultaneously. Wrap it up like a little classy, trashy sandwich. Put them both in your heart. (laughs) And then scream there. (laughs) Talk to y'all later. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all. <laughs>